Hey folks, before we begin, uh, just a quick reminder that on November 10th through the 13th of this year, Jim and I will be doing a live event in Walt Disney World. Friday we'll be doing an informal meetup at Rick's Lounge at Coronado Springs. Saturday we'll be doing a Pandora walkabout and an Illuminations dessert party. Sunday we'll be recording a show and doing some other stuff around the parks. Get all the details that you need to come visit with us at storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish. And now on with the show. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta, and today it's the episode you've been waiting for. Lo these many years, listeners. It's the review of Pandora, the World of Avatar, which is opening soon at Disney's Animal Kingdom. In order to do this review, we need to bring in the man who inspired the Navi people in James Cameron's imagination. That's one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Well, that was only because I held my breath for that long, Lynn. He <laughs> turned blue. That's right. It's like, hey, I could go with that. I mean, I'm a lot <laughs> taller and, and less fat, but yeah, that's a look I could go for. All right, Jim. So let's begin. You flew down on Thursday, May, what, 11th? Yeah. Like that. And was in there during the day on the 12th. The one thing, I did not get to see it at night I, because of a, some problems with the plane flight down. I didn't get in there. Did you get to do the nighttime stuff? Or? No, actually, I didn't. <sighs> My preview was Saturday, 12 to 2. But I, I think we've seen enough to know a little bit about how it's going to look at night. Curiously, the images that they've been showing from night are not of the entire land. And from what I've heard, some of the visual effects aren't yet working. Oh. That's why there haven't been many nighttime previews. Okay. So some bioluminous effects weren't working last night, but people were saying the sidewalk effects, the walking path effects were working. But but let's begin, Jim. Let's talk about walking in. You walk past what was the entrance to Camp Mini Mickey. Again, mm-hmm. this, this project started in what, like 2010, right? Mm, well, they broke ground, I want to say, in 2013. It's been a long time. It's the area formerly occupied by Camp Mini Mickey. You walk past now the new Tiffin's restaurant, the new... Nomad Lounge. We came to a a door where they checked our magic bands. We walked past it, and immediately you're on the pathway. And there are a couple of interesting things that you notice right off the bat that are different from Camp Mini Mickey. Mm -hmm. For me, it was the moss growing on the iron bridge that crosses the river into the land of Pandora. This was sort of like a spray-on plastic. It looks like, I mean, it looks like it's plastic or it's concrete. It's very mm-hmm. hard. It looks for all the world like, like real moss. And I think this is your first indication that there's more detail than you expected going into Pandora. Oh, definitely. And the bridge there, the rusted moss-covered bridge, that's supposed to, to represent, you step out of Disney's Animal Kingdom and you're now mm-hmm. crossing the equivalent of 4.4 light years to get to the moon of Pandora. No matter what they do with these movies, mm-hmm. this all takes place 30 years after that timeline wrap, wraps up. Everything that man has built, it's now being subsumed by the jungle. You see a little bit of this theme over in Asia, but this is, I think, more explicitly done. Everywhere you go, there are these little stories, just seeing that sort of moss and seeing how it's eating the bridge, but you walk through the pathways and see the old mess hall that now has the thatch roofing and all that thing extended. This is how the Navi have taken what was left behind and turned it into things that they can use or that people who are now traveling through the Alpha Centauri excursions can take advantage of. And 
it really is all these little stories that you have to put together yourself. What was your take on that, Len? My overall impression of the land is positive. The thing that I was most impressed with was how Disney seems to have engineered a better nature than nature. Mm-hmm. What Disney seems to have done here is built a more colorful, more detailed version of nature. Anyone who's driven through Kansas knows that there are parts of nature that are simply boring, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not called flyover country for no reason, right? The thing that I, I found most impressive about Pandora, setting aside the rides and, and, and the story, mm-hmm. was the fact that every single view from every angle I could check mm-hmm. was beautiful with mm-hmm. interesting details everywhere. There is no barren landscape in Pandora. And I think that was the best part of the entire thing. The whole area is just pretty to look at no matter where you are. Not only pretty, but if you notice how they stacked the views, there's something in your immediate foreground all the time. There's something in your middle distance all the time. And there's something really interesting in the far distance all the time as well. It's like they've somebody walked through and said, if this was an animated film and we were doing a multi-plane camera, what would be in each plane of our view? as we were walking through this land, and then they went and built it in three dimensions. I think that, for me, is my favorite part of, of Avatar, how it's a better nature than nature. I was, I was going to say, if, you know, if Mother Nature created Kansas, then Mother Rhodey created uh, Pandora, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, no, I, I can definitely buy into the better nature than nature. This was the challenge of putting this into Animal Kingdom. Let's face it, the whole conceit of this park is the intrinsic value of nature. And so the bulk of James Cameron's Avatar was done CG. Even they were creating this artificial world, but they were doing it on a server. They were creating, you know, frames of film. It's quite another thing to do this for real and to have it Mm -hmm. stand up. And as you said, be able to whip your head around 360 degrees and it's like, it all works. It all still holds together. There's no such thing as the bad view, the the place where it collapses. I was particularly impressed as we walked through both queues mm-hmm. for Navi River Journey and for Flight of Passage. And I particularly looked for bad views there. And, and the way I did it was I walked backward through mm-hmm. the queue. I mean, obviously, when you're walking through things, Disney's focusing your eyes forward. But I looked, I walked both from the side and then backward to see what it looked like. It was beautiful everywhere. Every, every single shot was framed by something. I walked all around the floating mountains, which we should talk about next. Mm-hmm. I did not see anything ugly on it. But let's, let's talk about the floating mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, they are much better executed than I had any right to hope Disney was going to do. No, you're right. But you know, the thing for me, like, for example, the waterfalls. Yes. Somewhere in that great tangle of vines and all that, there have to be water pipes. That's all hidden there in plain sight. By the way, I checked with the Imagineers who were driving the project, and I guess they broke ground in 2014, and it was only in 2015 or thereabouts they had to step away from the conceit of movement in the mountain. They were hoping at one point that they'd be able to create sort of a hinge effect and so that they would, in fact, have limited movement But in the end, it was just sort of like, it was a bridge too far. It was the one thing they couldn't do. Yeah. The maintenance on the hinges would have been, I mean, you think the Yeti's broken and, you know, it doesn't doesn't get maintained? Try hinges and mountains. So anyway, what they did to sell that story point, this particular set of floating mountains that have come into the Valley of Mora 
at the point when you see the waterfall, mm -hmm. pay attention to the lowest most point of the mountain. This particular set of mountains floated into the Valley of Mora and accidentally struck a rock outcropping. That's why actually the mountains are slightly canted upward rather than the floating level. Ah. When you look at the waterfalls, you can see where there's a stain just off at like a 45 degree angle from the waterfall. That's the way the waterfall used to come down when the mountains were actually floating. But once they struck and they were knocked slightly off kilter, the waterfalls took a new path, but you can still see the old path. I mean, that's the little detail upon little detail upon little detail that's supposed to tell you that story. I love the idea that some Imagineer had to figure out the orbital dynamics of floating mountains to figure out where, where, where the smudge went. <laughs> the meetings upon meetings they oh. had just to sign off on each individual layer of design. And neither you and I have experienced the nighttime version of this. No. I spoke with Matt Gaylor, the show producer in Pandora, and he said, this is a land you have to come back to and see at night because it's yeah. completely different. It goes yeah. from the majestic, beautiful grandeur of the floating mountains to this romantic place that's alive with light. And as he put it, this is the crown jewel of the nighttime reawakening of Animal Kingdom. Yeah, uh, I think that could be true. I, I definitely need to go back to see it at night. My senses probably won't be open at night until after Memorial Day. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the water, though. One of the things that I love about Pandora mm -hmm. is that there's water everywhere, and it does two things. Mm -hmm. It provides a background am ambient noise that sort of walks with you as you go throughout the land. But the other thing that I really liked is the ambient sounds that they're piping in, the animal sounds. Oh, God, yeah. And that is incredibly detailed as well. You want to talk about that? That's ridiculously complex. It's not just a sound profile. The way this is set up, you'll hear an animal moving through the brush that will then make a call. And then across the way, you'll hear either an animal from the same species call in response, or you'll hear different species who are warning the other animals in the area. It's like, oh, crap, the big thing is coming. Predator! Yeah. Yeah, that level of storytelling, which reinforces that you're in a real place. Yeah. You lived for a long time in the Carolinas, so you, mm -hmm. you remember your battles with raccoons and hedgehogs <laughs> or groundhogs. You know, that wall of sound is an everyday thing that you just accept when you live in this sort of environment. One of the things that I noticed, though, is that the noises themselves seem to change with the time of day. Like, there's, there seems to be a morning cadence, an afternoon cadence, and I'm assuming there's going to be an evening cadence where, you know, things are waking up, then during the middle part of the day, it's a little bit more sedate in terms of the noise, and then I guess it picks up again at night. I'm told that the particularly impressive time will be sunset headed into twilight, headed into night, that there's a sophisticated... Mm -hmm sound profile for that period, whereas everything that was out and in this area at daytime is headed to bed and other things mm -hmm. begin to wake up and the nighttime insects and the jungle coming alive at night. It, it might be worth it just to hang out in Pandora and listen to the symphony of sound. Also, the bioluminescent jungle wakes up. What did you think about the walking paths through Pandora? They're not sort of the hub-and-spoke architecture of Main Street, USA, these are definitely more meandering pathways, right? Yeah, but at the same time, you did the same thing I did. You came in the bridge over Tiffin's, you left over the bridge through Tiffin's, right? Yeah, the walkway to Africa wasn't open yet, although there, you could see cast members walking to it, and there's definitely a bridge there as well. Yeah, for all of the feel of this is actually the way paths would go to the terrain, there mm -hmm. isn't a sense of 
well, where does this path take me? And, right. and now I'm yeah. lost. I mean, there's, there's a simplicity and a clarity to it, the way you navigate. Is there a guideline for it? I mean, they tell you, like, specifically always head left or something like that? No, not yet. That's the challenge from your side of the fence. You're, you're going to have to, from a Turing plant's point of view, how are you going to tell people to travel through this land? Because half the charm of it is that where does that go? You yeah. know? To me, it reminded me of the Oasis, where the entry point of the Animal Kingdom, where there are, as the song says, two paths you can go by, Mm -hmm. but you end up on Discovery Island either way. The way I I counted it in Pandora, if you wanted to get to Navi River Journey, or you wanted Mm -hmm. to get to Flood of Passage, there were at least three different paths you could take to get to those, not counting all the little cutouts where the paths joined up, Mm -hmm. but at least three distinct routes. Okay. to get in. And I thought that was pretty good. And the thing I liked about the routes, one of them was sort of the fairly wide, although curvy path that Disney would you know expect to take with a larger group or something like that. But mm-hmm. others were fairly small. They all had different terrain heights. So mm-hmm. some were a little bit more elevated than others. A couple of them went over streams. Mm-hmm. And I liked the variety there. Some of the bridges were flat. Some of the bridges appeared arched. Some of them appear definitely much more man-made than others are Navi-made. When you come out of the Navi River excursion, I love that bridge just for the wear and tear. Yeah. There's a metal base on the bridge, and you can tell at one point it was supposed to be metal that was made into crosshatch X's, mm-hmm. right, into X shapes. But there's now dirt and, of course, moss growing up in the holes around the, the metal where the metal touched the dirt. And so, so dirt had started to come over it. And you can't see the metal in other places. But there are other places where you can actually see the metal exposed. And it definitely looks like it's been worn by years and years of footsteps. Yep. So they've, uh, they've aged that as well. You mentioned uh, Navi River Journey. Is that the first ride you went on? Yeah. I don't know what you experienced with Light of Passage, but they seem to be having some operational hiccups. Oh, we'll talk about that, Jim. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about Navi River, River Journey. Okay. It's with um, the... If you if you follow the, the path in mm-hmm. and you stay basically to your left, you will end up at Navi River Journey. For the AP preview, they told us we could ride it as many times as we wanted, and we weren't going to need Fast Pass for it. Whereas for Flight of Passage, they gave us a 15 minute return window mm-hmm. printed on a Fast Pass pass, the old the old style ones, and said this is the time at which you will ride it. So first thing we rode was Navi River Journey. What would you describe? The queue, like it's this large straw hut-like structure that holds the the line, right? Let's actually back up to what did you think about the non-marquee marquee? The fact that there's not much signage that tells you this is the ride. Yeah, I liked it. The thing they may have problems with is people finding it. I can definitely see Disney having to put cast members out or signs out saying Navi River Journey, mm-hmm. you know, ahead. It's a subtle land. If they had a neon sign or something like that. Navi here with a big arrow, that would not be the right no, it, it the right sense of place. It definitely was it was hard to find the entrance to it. Although once you did, then you just go back to it. I liked it. It was subtle and I think a lot of the land is subtle. I think it, it fit in perfectly. whether it works operationally, mm-hmm. it's like this painting is lovely, but I wouldn't want to live in it. Yeah. We'll see how it runs. I love going through the queue and seeing all of the the Navi folk art, the weaving, the, you know, the weaving, right. yeah, yeah. tornado-shaped supports and that sort of thing. When you finally get into this thing, so two boats launch at the same time. Each boat holds four people, so it's groups of eight being pulsed through this four-minute-long attraction. Yeah, I think it's five minutes, including load time, but the design time, as they say, the time at which you're actually looking at stuff, is four mm-hmm. minutes, which is relatively short for a boat ride. What do you think about the boat size, two by two? 
No, it's, this is definitely not a Pirates of the Caribbean boat. No, not at all. Not at all. And I think that you're here in Pandora and we want you to feel things. And so right. you know, when you're, how many people are in a bateau for Pirates of the Caribbean? Was it six rows of four? So 24 people at a time? Yeah, most Americans can fit three in there, but still 18 to 24, let's say. Yeah. yeah. And so God Pirates, you're not expected to feel anything. You know, here that that was the notion that you're supposed to be yeah. surrounded by this bioluminescent forest and see all these creatures in the riverbank. And I know that some people sort of like, oh, it's projections for these being animals and that sort of thing. But I, I loved actually the animation on the animals, like the viper wolves, I believe they are. I love that they actually behave like animals, whether grabbing their young and leaving the scene or sort of growling at people in the, the boats as they're passing by. I mean, it was very understated, but at the same time, the sense that you are in a real place observing. In fact, honestly, my one of my favorite details is that part where you're going under the giant leaves and you're watching them bow down. Right. As the creatures are jumping from leaf to leaf. And by the way, as, as we're as I'm going through Pandora, yep. I think in the back of both of our minds, we're, we're comparing this to Diagon Alley, right? Let, let's mm-hmm. just, be, just be blunt about this. Yep. One of the things that I thought Navi River Journey did better than Gringotts, and I'm not saying it's the same ride as Gringotts, but one of the improvements that I see mm-hmm. is there are screens in both rides. One of the interesting things that Disney seems to have done with the screens is, although there's a screen projection on which you can see the wolves and the other things, there are other things behind that screen. Mm-hmm. Again, like this idea of a multi-plane camera where you've got something in the foreground, the medium distance, and then the far distance. And the, the fact that you can see things moving at a separate pace in the distance, in addition to the thing that you're supposed to be watching in the screen in the middle distance, the fact that all of those things are happening at their own paces, to me, adds more depth to the scene than I got out of Gringotts. Well, so it's, I'm, it's funny I'm you not bring... saying Navi's a better ride than Gringotts. I'm saying that particular element where both rides have screens, Disney seems to have done screens better. Oh, no, I've got to give that to you. I think one of my favorite moments out of the attraction is uh, the first time you see sort of the, a group of Navi people moving through the jungle, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're at a distance and you're looking through fully adjust them. And in fact, it takes you a, a moment or two to realize, what am I looking at? Like, oh, cool. But in the foreground, there's like this rotted tree trunk that has fallen over the space. And you can actually see little glow in the dark worms and centipedes that are making their way around the log or, or that sort of thing. I mean, it's just that is one of my favorite effects in the entire ride. Did you see how they did it? No. How? Video projection. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, we just talked about it happily ever after. Disney seems to have gone in all in on this because the wow. uh, yeah, it's and I actually had to ride it twice. And it was only after the second time mm-hmm. that I realized it was video projection. The second time through, I focused specifically on that as soon as you could see it. That's another great use of that technology to add three dimensional effects. I to agree. A set like that. I agree. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. So you mentioned the fact that as you're floating, you go underneath these large I hate to use the word bioluminescent, but let's go with it. Bioluminescent plant leaves that are humongous, you know, five feet long and three feet wide. And they're translucent, so you can see bugs and other animals hopping on them. And as they hop on them, the the leaves actually bounce up and down. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be the amount of movement seems to be adjusted based on the size of the animal. That's it exactly, yeah. That's walking on the leaf, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's nice. Mm-hmm. But the weird thing is that every so often I'd get pulled out by, for example, the giant pink dangly things that don't move. Yeah. I'm going to have to circle back on 
the Navi River to see if the other elements of the, the jungle will come alive once they have time to get them all installed. If what you're hearing true about the nighttime lighting profile being not are completely up and running at this point, I mean, again, they've got a hard opening on, what is it, May 26th that they still they've have? Less, less than two weeks. <laughs> so it's just sort of, you know, lots of folks working at night with flashlights. For me, the one effect that didn't work mm-hmm. on Navi originally, we still have to talk about the animatronic, but the one effect that didn't work for me mm-hmm. is there are these um, dinner plate sized spiral glowing things that move up and down in the uh, in the trees, and they are they're very bright to the point where your eye will focus on those first as you round the turns mm-hmm. of the Navi region. And the thing that bothers me about it is. I mean, just from an evolutionary point, no no animal has ever evolved a helicopter-like <laughs> method of flight, right? It's like, you know, I, I studied evolution in, in graduate school. You know, no no animal has ever evolved the wheel and axle as mm. a method of movement. I mean, for the creators of, of Pandora to say, oh, yeah, this thing is going to be essentially be like a uh, an Archimedes screw through the air, and that's how we're going to fly. Eh, come on. It's not realistic. The other thing is, is it moves, it moves too slow mm-hmm. for there to be any possible way that, that enough air could be going through it. And for me, the fact that it's, it looks like it doesn't work and it's so bright reminded me a lot of Under the Sea, Journey of the Little Mermaid, like those, those types of very simple effects. And that brought me out a little bit from it. But overall, I, th- I thought the atmosphere of the effects is good. We did point out, Jim, that there's not an obvious plot no, in, in no. River Journey. And I think this is different than the rides in the Magic Kingdom or the rides in Epcot or even the studios where you know, Disney has traditionally given you an explicit narrative. Mm-hmm. If, not, if not explicit, an easily understood implicit narrative. Like in Pirates of the Caribbean, it's fairly obvious that you're, once you get into the, to the main scene, you're watching pirates attack a town and you're, you're seeing it evolve both through time and space, right? If you look at Spaceship Earth... The history of communications unfolds, unfolds along a timeline. There isn't the obvious plot in Navi River Journey, although from what I understand, having written it a few times, it's the idea that you're going through the forest and watching uh, all of these creatures go to a sacred spot for some sort of ceremony. That seems to be the, the plot, right? Yeah, and but you said that the W word, you said wizarding. Part of the problem here is you know, you're going to see the fabled the Shaman of Song. We've both seen Avatar, and I didn't see that character in that movie, did I? That's why I asked you whether this theme park land is, is part of the canon. Well, according to John Landau, the, the producer of the film... Who, who some, you met on your on your press thing, right? His, oh, by the way, John's here. <laughs> you know, some of the stuff that's been introduced in this land will show up in the movies, and okay. I can't help but think that at some point, if the Shaman of Song is introduced as a character in the films and drives a certain story point or, or you know, how significant that character is, that'll become a big deal. Right now, I'm looking at it and thinking, that's the most amazing AA figure I've ever seen. It is, and that, that's exactly what I got out of it, too. It's the most amazing animatronic. By the way, one of the cast members told us after the ride that the animatronic's eyes are designed to lock on you in each row of the boat as you pass through it. That moment of intimacy with the character. That was a little... That, I wasn't expecting it the first time, even even though I, I knew, to, uh, knew to expect it. It was very, very, very interesting. The other thing I liked about the animatronic, other than the fact that it is easily the most fluid and lifelike of the animatronics, the singer that they chose to voice 
the shaman is not a professional singer by any means. This is like you, it's the tonal quality of the music is like you or I singing these, <laughs> these songs, right, Jim, right? And I like that. I appreciate it. No, they, I they do. Didn't, I they do. didn't go out and hire a professional singer for it. That's right. And, and, yeah, and, you, and, I, and, I, and I, liked it. I liked it quite a bit. What's your overall impression of the, of the ride? The A is the, big, is the big end of it, right? I, and I know pleasant is a really mild word. Yeah, you're damning with faint praise there, but uh, yeah. Yes, it's immersive. Yes, you're surrounded by this amazing level of detail. Yes, it's rewritable, but it's pleasant. It, from a flex point of view, yes, it's groundbreaking. From a storytelling point of view, not so much. I mean, it really is... Very small worldly, but you don't have your catchy song or your stylized designer, that sort of thing. I mean, it just, it is incredibly well done for what it is, but it's a four minute long boat ride to meet a character that you haven't met before. I give it high mark marks for execution. You know, I love the detail and the design of it, but I, I just never felt like I was emotionally engaged. I felt like I was in a very detailed live environment you know in terms of like bonding with the the characters or things like that i mean not really but um, this is my checklist as i was going through it does mm -hmm. it fit in the theme of the land obviously it does does it advance the story incrementally it's not like going back to pirates the fact that pirates is an adventure land adds to the story of adventure land i don't see the same sort of additive quality of the story of the the navi river journey it's uh, it's more like in, in terms of adding to the story, it's more like Grand Vista Tour does to the Mexico Pavilion, which I think stands on its own. The detail that they put into it, and especially the multi-layered effects that they have in it, make it better than other aspects of, of similar rides, right? They make it similar rides. No, I mean, it's better no, than... No. It's better than Grand Fiesta, obviously, because it's got it, it's got more technology. The A figure alone is probably worth it. You know, is it better than Small World? And this is this is actually how I'm ranking this. Is it better than, than Small World? I'm not sure. Is it better than Pirates? I don't think it's better than Pirates. Mm -hmm. Pirates, has, Pirates has a story with elaborate sets. So for me, it's somewhere between, you know, Grand Fiesta, which is definitely better than, but not as good as Pirates. For me, that's somewhere in small world territory. Okay. Okay. No, I... I like what you said about small world having a distinct visual style. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mary Blair created that. And you can look at things, other things that Disney does in the same style and say, oh, they're, you know, this is an homage to Mary Blair, or this is, you know, this is in the style of small world. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you'll be able to do the same thing for Navi River Journey. It, so for me, it's going to fall somewhere in there. I'm thinking three and a half, four stars out of five, you know, mm -hmm. depending on the mood that I'm in and what I ate the night before. Would I go on it again? Yes. I would go on it again no, just no, for no. the visual I mean, elements. And look at the, yeah. It's rewritable. I'll, I'll give it that. No, I, I, that's it exactly. I, I'm sure every time I write it, I will see something different. I mean, those strange little goat creatures that come down by the river, I loved. Yeah. I loved how once they exited, the plants opened again. I mean, it was something. Saw, yeah, that was a nice touch. Yeah. See, that's yeah. the thing. There's enough in it that even grading it, you know, 3.5 to 4, it's still something, <laughs> hey, we're going into Pandora. Oh, we're oh. going to do the river ride. I, I go I go on Pirates of the Caribbean every time I'm in the Magic Kingdom. I go on Grand Fiesta Tour every time I'm in the Mexico Pavilion. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't go on Small World that often because the song will stick with me. But it's, it's going to be one of those things where if I'm there, you know, and the mm -hmm. line's not an hour long, I'll, I'll go on it. I would wait, you know, 20 minutes for the ride. The other couple of things I really liked about the ride, mm -hmm. I like the fact that it's two-person, two-row boats. And, and the reason for that is it fits in the story of the Navi creating these things out of woven reeds, right? The, the Navi don't have fiberglass, right? There There's go. no Chris Craft in Pandora, so they mm -hmm. don't have the, the boat styles of, 
of Pirates of the Caribbean, and I, and I really appreciate that. The fact that they got that level of detail right only adds to it. In the queuing area, when you get to the, to the main area, it's sort of like a giant domed hut. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of things I like about it. Again, it shows the weaving skills of the Navi. But did you notice that they had fans built so that you're being constantly cooled as you walk through the land? And it was, it was 94 degrees when I was walking this, and overcast. Mm-hmm. Thank you, whoever, whoever planned that. And the, Disney seems to have clearly understood that there's going to be some air movement needed to keep these people comfortable in line. I really liked it. There are a couple of places in Pandora, and we'll talk about the next one, where you definitely feel like between the background music and the woven reed emphasis on, on building materials, you could be in the Animal Kingdom Lodge. That's it exactly. That, I love that they found that way to, to create sort of a visual consistency between mm-hmm. the various components of this theme park and its associated resorts and that sort of thing. Yep. So what did you do after you did uh, Navi River Journey? Well, well, no, no. Before we go, we have to tell the story about the shaman, the Yeti story. Oh, that's right. That's right. So uh, w- one of the things that I'm, I'm writing for the unofficial guide is, and I'll probably go with three and a half stars for the review. And, and literally in the review, I wrote this. I said, it's three and a half stars for now. If they can keep this animatronic running for a year, I'll add another half a star to it. <laughs> Honest to God, it's the review. And the reason for that is that Disney's previously tried, mm. you know, very complicated animatronics, and it's the Yeti over at Expedition Everest. The thing broke, and they were never able to fix it. You know, I've talked about it before. They were never able to fix it because of the way they built the Yeti, there was no way to maintain it. Once it was in place, they've learned their lesson here. What's the what's the story, Jim? Well, they had what they call the Yeti meeting oh, yeah. when they were building Navi River, and as well as I want to say the Grizzly River equivalent that was done for Shanghai Disneyland, the one that, that has the giant crocodile creature. Mm-hmm. What they do now is that if we're building a sophisticated animatronic that's a key feature in an attraction, there has to be a way to maintain it. It cannot be built in such a way that we can't get in to fix it. So, for example, for right. the crocodile creature at Shanghai Disneyland, there's actually a catwalk built inside of it. If they need to maintain it, they hit a button, the tail lifts up like a garage door, and people can walk up the inside of it and maintain the animatronics and change out the eyeballs, whatever they need to do. With the shaman, Len and I just learned, that AA figure is built in such a way that if it has an operational issue, mm-hmm. it's actually on a retractable pad. It can be pulled off stage into a maintenance bay, and they can make the repair in that show building. They hit the button, and the pad rolls back out into show position, and she can go back to singing and beating on those reeds. And from what we heard, the meeting was literally, let's have the Yeti meeting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like having a disease named after you. you I don't know who, who uh, you know, Jim Parkinson was, but you know, <laughs> but we all know his name. It's gonna be. It's the. Oh, oh it's, I know, right? Okay. It's the. Yeah. Uh, it's the Yeti meeting. Yeah. yeah. There we go. All right. It's so like that, anyway, yeah. now we transition to flights of passage. All right. The headliner attraction of the land. The big buildup for it. Let's describe the queue. You actually walk up into the lid. So the way that the Pandora rides are built is Flight of Passage sits on top of part of Navi River Journey. And because of that, you actually walk up a switchback on a hill to get to the entrance to the uh, Flight of Passage ride, right? Yes, you do. At one point, you can look up you can actually see the arch-like rock structures that were such a signature part of the Avatar film. So let me say, Jim, that we'll probably talk about this queue for the next 10 minutes because it is the longest line 
I have ever seen in my entire life. I asked a cast member, and I said, what happens when this line is full? How long is the wait? Do you know how long the wait is? No. It's five hours. <laughs> if, if the line is full, it's five. If you can see the line from outside, the line is five hours long. Oh, my God. It winds through this mountain. I think you go through, like, every historical and geologic period within mm-hmm. Pandora. You go into the mountain, and it starts as a cave. And the, one of the things I love about it is it's not the typical Disney entrance where it's obvious this is the entrance. The openings that you go through aren't perfectly rounded. They look like they're crevices in the rock. As you wind through mm-hmm. the queue, you can tell you're definitely walking through Navi caves that were then appropriated for the human experiments or the human inhabitants of it. So you, as you're walking through the queue, you get this element of these were caves that were populated by the Navi thousands of years ago, and here's where you know the humans have come in and dug tunnels and, and added their infrastructure and whatnot. And you weave back and forth between these. And again, you're, going, you're walking up and down at different levels. But the amount of detail in the queue, every single step, mm-hmm. there's something to see. If you're there for five hours, you will see a lot. No doubt. Did you go in through the fast pass side? I or? did both. I actually walked the standby line just to see. And they were letting us do it. They were letting us tour the standby line just as a, an attraction by itself. And I was okay. really impressed with the standby line. I got as far back in the standby line as the top of the jungle. But what is the deal with the, the jungle? About halfway through the queue. Mm-hmm. You walk back out into the jungle, but it's nighttime jungle. And how much of a line is in there? You know, it's hard to say because by that time, mm-hmm. you've already gone through, I think, the cave people, the, the Navi cave experience where they've got sort of the cave paintings. Mm-hmm. You've gone through a couple of airlocks of the ace. Yep. Mm-hmm. Ace. And then you're out in sort of like the back wing of the camp mm-hmm. where you're in the jungle and. It's like you're walking outside on a metal walkway that sort of passes through the jungle as a scenic overlook, and then you head back into the building. But it's it's definitely nighttime jungle, very pretty, very well done. Mm-hmm. And you, you can sort of see different plants there. And there are actually plants in there that I hadn't, you don't see outside or you don't see in uh, Navi River Journey. So again, just another layer of detail. But everywhere you look, mm-hmm. it's not only, you know, here are the things that you're looking at immediately in the line. You look farther down the line, and there's something off in the distance. And mm-hmm. it's supposed to be in the distance. You never get close to it. But you can tell it's, it's detailed as well. And then you, you swing back in, and you end up in a laboratory. And this is, you are now back in the film, where they introduce the whole concept of how one connects with an actual avatar. And, mm-hmm. well, you, you have to talk about the creepy thing in the tube. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple of things before you go through it. What are the effects that I like? So you, it's almost like mission space in that you go by like a mission command module thing. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. They've, got, they've got sort of this round area where experiments are, are going on. Mm-hmm. There are tubes in which there's flowing water and little bubbly things that move up and down. And as you go through it, there's a video display at the bottom that explains what the experiment is. And if you stand there long enough over a period of 10 minutes... They actually change the narrative of what you're looking at. In, in one aspect or in one display, the things that are moving the tube are supposed to be an aerodynamic test of what it's like to fly on the back of, of a banshee. In another one, it's the movement of the little egg-like things in the tube are supposed to be banshee egg incubations. So they're just periodically moving them. But the other thing I liked in there is you're walking past these experiments, and there are these black metal blobs oh, yeah. in different shapes that move. And it, imagine a starfish 
mm-hmm. but made entirely black mm-hmm. and slightly metallic looking, moving around a container. But then, it, as it gets to the edges of the container, the arms of the starfish retract into the, the starfish body so that it becomes a blob. And then as it moves off the corners back, the starfish shape reemerges. I hate to do this. It's a wonderful, impressive effect. But oh, I'm, I'm, totally, I'm totally making it at home. I know how they do it. Well, no, that's it exactly. It's Hobo Joe, all right? It's, it is, it's Hobo Joe. It is. It's a ferrous metal in a liquid. No, that's it exactly. <laughs> the, six people who, the six people who understand this, this little kid's drawing thing that we just referenced, it's Hobo Joe. <laughs> I mean, I, I was so happy when somebody explained that to me. It's like, wow, okay, so... It's a liquid uh, with a uh, ferrous metal suspended in it and uh, mm-hmm. with uh, correctly shaped magnets in the back pulling it along. There you go. Great party trick, though. I mean, just mm-hmm. really... And they've got different shaped ones. But all of that leads up to... You, know, you can tell they're doing experiments, and the experiments go from sort of like the abstract, you know, mm-hmm. aerodynamic wind tunnel things to here are some small-scale things we're doing with living creatures. To the big effect, which is this got to be 10 foot long Easy. Navi mm-hmm. floating in a, a tube. You know how like in Living with the Land, for, for this is for reference, in Living with the Land, as you're going through the boat ride, you pass the, the alligator where the alligators used to be, and you see those long tubes where they're, where they're farming shrimp. Mm-hmm. Imagine that, but with a person suspended in it. That's what you're looking at um, here, a giant blue person with an umbilical cord. What do you think? They do such a great job of selling that this is a real thing, whether it's the finger twitch or the jerky movement of someone sleeping or that sort of yeah. thing. This isn't an audio animatronic figure sword fighting, all right? The things that one associates with this sort of technology, this is all little subtle movement that sells that this is a living thing. I thought it was, was fairly well done. I think it was a little oversold based well, on the conversations I had heard. It's yeah. it's very realistic. Don't get me wrong. And if I'm if I'm standing there for for five minutes in the line as I walk past it, I would definitely appreciate mm-hmm. the subtle touches of it. It was a little anticlimactic for me. Okay. Um, okay. After seeing everything else, it was good for what it, for what it was. Mm-hmm. Once you get to that point, though, you're pretty much on the ride, right? They there you they give you up into groups. There you go. And it's almost like Mission Space, where you go into different areas, you stand on little circles. And this is where the pre-show begins. Mm-hmm. No matter which line you get in, no matter which room you go into, there is a pre-show that explains how they're going to link you to an avatar riding on the Banshee, so it feels like you're on the Banshee. And they do some interesting effects. Where not, I, won't, I won't spoil this, but they do some interesting effects where they, they pretend to scan you for you know, different things like parasites and whatnot. And then there's um, videos that explain the background of how they were able to do this, and they tell a story about it. And then and they explain what's going to happen. By the way, did, did you notice that there's two parts to the pre-show movie? The first part is the same for everyone. The second part is different, depending on which room you're in. Not really. Okay. So the reason I know this is because the ride broke down on us as soon as we, as soon as we finished the pre-show movie. They had to move us to another room, and the second half of the movie was different. Really? Okay. Yeah, so different pre-show experiences, too. Again, but I think this is classic, classic mm-hmm. Pandora. There are levels of detail here that you're just not going to see mm-hmm. until you go back again and again. We eventually get in on the uh, on the ride, and I think it's uh, 16 people per level, and I think there are three levels in it. So it, in many ways, it's like Soren in, in that there are three different height levels mm-hmm. and multiple people on it. And there's more briefings. I think that actually the pre-show goes on a little long, but I understand why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's to keep you occupied and to, and to break up the weight. You're eventually escorted into a room 
where it looks like, Jim, you're in the Soul Cycle class from hell. <laughs> you're asked to stand behind this thing that looks like if you had to build a motorcycle replica out of plastic. Mm-hmm. This is what you would come up with. It's got sort of interesting handlebar shapes. You can tell there's a seat, there's a display in front, and they're very specific about the way in which you should enter this contraption because it's surrounded by a plastic shroud. And they, what they tell you is to stand to the left of it and throw your leg over like you're riding a bicycle. Did, did anybody in your group have trouble with this? No, though I've been following this ride system was the one that, you know, Disney paid very close attention to all the weight-related, size-related issues that Universal had with the flying benches for Forbidden Journey. And this being sort of a new iteration of the soaring technology, but again, they wanted to give you that ride-on experience. Yeah. The one issue I guess they're having is that people with calves that are particularly large, whether, you know, you're weight again, and I guess it's a, a number of people who lift weights or that sort of thing that are having an issue that aren't being allowed to ride because they have really muscular, large calves. But that's the thing. You have to scoot. You have to scoot all the way forward. Yeah. All the way, yeah. You know. It was almost like getting your shoes measured as your kid. Remember they would tell you to, like, push your feet all the way there forward we go. or back? Okay. It, was, it was exactly like this. They would tell you specifically... If there was an inch of room between the front of this, the front of your shroud, plastic shroud, and your foot, they would tell you to move it all the way forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Once everyone is, is seated, you've got your hands on these sort of U-shaped, actually, they're like double V-shaped mm-hmm. uh, handlebars. There's a little display in front of you. You're looking down at that, and, you can, and you're wearing goggles too, 3D goggles. Once everyone is seated and everyone is set, the restraint system gets activated. At that point, you start to feel like a cow that's about to be inseminated. There is no other explanation for it uh, uh, for than this. Something comes up and holds your back in place. Yeah, little- Something comes up and holds your leg in place. Mm-hmm. And it's to say that it's a snug fit is, I think, an understatement. The woman next to me said, at this point in this experience, someone should have bought me a drink. <laughs> <laughs> that was her line, and I loved it. I um, no, I have to ask, once you were... In the restraints, how soon after that did the ride begin? For us, it was at least a minute okay. that we were restrained and nothing at all happened. And I think this, there was actually some technical difficulty here. Yeah. The fact is that three levels of uh, rows of 16 have to all be synchronized. If one person needs a little bit more time to adjust themselves in the restraint, all 48 people sit being restrained until that one person is ready to fly. And I think that's causing some of the problem. And, and I understand why they have to do it, but I think operationally, mm-hmm. they have to get that time down. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, this, this hourly, hourly capacity of this ride is going is, is to be terrible. By the way, did you hear what the hourly capacity limit is, the high? How? I heard it's 1,400 people an hour, but the way that they're running it through, I calculated they couldn't get more than 1,000. Wow. And 1,000 people an hour for something like that is it's less than Dumbo right now. Uh-huh. So they definitely have to get the restraint system better. And they have to get the timing of it better. So the things have to, have to be a little snappier. I wouldn't be surprised if they actually cut down the pre-show a little bit. Because to me, the pre-show went on for about a minute too long. Well, I think, honestly, the pre-show is there vamping. In fact, did you get the, hang on, I'm having an issue, and he steps out yeah. of the lab moment? That's common in both. Okay. But then the second, the second part of it was, here's a history of the lab. And it was the uh, Sigourney Weaver character mm-hmm. um, history. And then in the other one, it was talking about the cultural significance of riding the Banshee. Yeah, okay. The whole notion of when you're in the restraint and you're hanging there, and I, 
it could have been a minute. It could have been four. I'm not sure. In, in yeah. my case, that amount of lag time, all of the wonderful prep that you've done in advance, all of the wonderful storytelling falls apart because you're yeah. sitting there in that restraint waiting for this experience to begin. It's true. It sort of breaks the narrative. Yeah. Uh, we should say, as you're, as you're seeing this harness, you're looking at a metal wall. Yep. A metal wall with basically horizontal panels. Yeah. The lights dim. I think there's a flash of light. The, the, everything goes dark. And you have a great star field effect from the moment that you're supposedly sinking with your avatar. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like uh, going through hyperspace or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you're, you're flying. What did you think? So I'd just been on Soren mm -hmm. the day before. Okay. I think, this, again, damning with faint praise, it's pleasant. You understand why they do the ride vehicle. So it's imagine instead of hang gliding over California, you're riding a motorcycle in the air around, around California. It's like that. Mm -hmm. You definitely see the similar style in the film with Soren, where you're flying above things and below things, and you know, there's, uh, the animals are doing things below you as you fly over the landscape. And there's twists and turns. I did like the fact that you could, as you were supposedly riding this banshee, you could feel it breathing. Mm -hmm. So there are air bladders down by your legs, which expand and contract like the, the banshee is, is breathing. The thing I, I didn't feel was, I didn't feel the banshee breathing harder as, we were, as it exerted itself mm -hmm. throughout the ride. What did you think of the, of the ride experience itself? Again, pleasant is the word. And you know what I think the problem is? I don't know where I am. You know, there's only been the one Avatar film, and yes, we are now flying over a jungle. But what jungle is this? And now I'm flying down by the shore. But what shore is this? And yes, yeah, it's why? Yeah, what's the significance of this particular thing that I'm looking at? Yeah, you I know, agree. I mean, and, and when you're on Soaring, it's like, oh, that's the Taj Mahal. Oh, that's the Eiffel Tower. These are places I know, and I have emotions connected with them. In Flight of Passage, the flying itself is wonderful. I just don't know what I'm looking at and what is significant about it. Yeah. I bet you that, again, when Pandora 2, 3, 4, and the prequel comes out, and suddenly, oh my god, I'm by the sacred sea, or, oh, look, it's that, that herd full of those really dangerous animals that they fought in the third film. I mean, when I right. know what I'm looking at, this will mean something. But right now, it's just sort of like... That's a thing, and I'm flying over the thing, and I'm under the thing. The one moment that registers is the attack by the, the giant flying thing, because it's like, okay, that's the thing that Jake tamed in the, f the first movie, and even the Navi people were impressed by that, because, you know, this is the wild creature that no one's ever tamed before, and here is one. That's actually the, the only one thing that I recognized. The, the thing that you just mentioned, the fact that we don't know why we care about these things, that's the criticism, not only with the land, but with the film. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, yeah. we all appreciate the craft and the technical nature that was the Pandora film. Nobody gives a damn about the plot. No one cares about the, the movie itself, you know, in terms of the characters or the, uh, or the meaning of it. And I think that's, that's the one thing that's lacking in both rides. The fact that we don't really have an emotional connection to either the story or the characters that go about it. Mm. It's, it's all great to look at. It's fine. Um, but there's no real emotional connection with any of it. And that's not, that's not Disney's fault. That's, no, that's it's not. It's, it's the source material. And they have brought every tool. It, everything's brilliantly executed, hyper-detailed. They have tried to make you feel. And they get you really close. I felt more walking around just the land 
than I did on either of the two rides. <laughs> Jim, we had the exact same experience. Let me tell you, maybe you were my avatar for this because I, I, I thought exactly the same thing. Do I like the rides? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do I like the land? I love the land. There we go. The other thing I, I would say about the film, and mm-hmm. other than the fact that there's no real emotional connection with anything, you could feel the pacing and mm-hmm. the beats that they had to hit in it mm-hmm. were exactly the same as Swords. So are you familiar with, I forget the name of the book, but apparently a, a book came out a couple of years ago that was essentially saying, here's how to write a movie. It, 30 seconds in, your scene has to show this. Two and a half minutes in, your plot should do this. Five minutes in, your plot should do this, right? And the funny thing is, is that if you go back and look at a lot of the hit films that have been made since that book came out, they follow the same plot. And I think I felt the same way about the Pandora ride. Mm. You know, it's, you could feel how there's an act one, an act two, and an act three, and you know how it's going to end, you know, in a beautiful sunset on the beach. And, and it's, it's basically the same, the same sort of beats as you get on Soren, mm. where you start off in the morning somewhere, you go through the afternoon, you end up at night at the, at the Eiffel Tower. Same sort of formula there, although it's you know, completely different scenes. Again, technically, a very good ride. When I ride it again, yeah, probably. People around me loved it, by the way. I've had people talk about how you know, they've used the words like transformative or that they came off it in tears. And I, I will tell you, I, whenever I ride Soaring, I well up with emotion. I, yeah. That ride for me, that's the attraction equivalent of a poem. Yeah, even knowing that it's all like CGI, yeah, right? Yeah, I will say this. I rode Soren, this last time I wrote it was the first time I wrote it in the middle set of seats. And it's a better, a vastly better experience mm-hmm. in the middle set of seats. So well, our, our it, list- it's interesting you say that because I had seat 16 on this and I'd, I'll have to go back and try it again, hopefully to get a seat that's directly in the middle and see if that'll close oh, the deal. That, Laura was also in seat 16 and she said that at one point she had turned her head just mm-hmm. to sort of look around the scene, and she managed to see mm-hmm. all 16 people in all three rows, and uh-huh. it sort of brought her out of the experience. Okay. I was in 15, and I didn't, I didn't turn my head that much, so I never really got the effect that I was out of it. The one thing that I, I did get uh, on it was that my glasses were kind of smudged, so mm-hmm. everything was a little bit blurry for me, but you know, they can fix that. So okay. a scale of one to five, how many stars for this ride? I gotta say, it's like a three and a half, a four? Where would you put it? Four. Yeah. It's a good ride. Uh, I think we should do the food in a separate show, so let's do that. But but let's sum up the land itself, excluding the food. What, what's your overall impression of it? The point that sold the land for me, you come to that overlook that looks out over the park and, you know, the sort of the first real glimpse of the floating mountains. It's it's when you've made that walk to the left after going around the weird, smoking, leaky plant. But, <laughs> but then if you turn around, there is this tree that mm-hmm. clearly has been torn apart by something that's looking for grubs. And it stood there for a moment and realized, that's sculpted. Somebody actually created this, created yeah. a rotted tree that had been attacked by something looking for food. And it looks like it's been there forever. And it looks like I could go out in the woods in my backyard and find something that looks just like it. Only this is an otherworldly tree. It has that look to it. Uh, ultimately makes you buy into, I am. I have somehow gotten off the, of the moon of Pandora. I don't know how I got here, you know, crossing yeah. that bridge, but I'm here. So I'm going to ask the question that's on everyone's mind, better than Diagon Alley or no? I have to say no. With the understanding that the reason that Diagon Alley and uh, Hogsmeade are better is that these are based on eight movies, seven books. You know more of the Wizarding World. I keep telling folks, though, that I honestly think that three and four films into these prequels of that sort of thing, this land is going to resonate. People are going to make such a stronger connection when they're that much more familiar with the world. Disney has done 
brilliant execution on not enough source material. It's not a strong enough IP to have built an entire land on. But that said, I cannot wait from the lessons they learned from building Avatar. If they do the same thing with Star Wars land, I will pitch a pup tent outside of this. But, you know, I'll, I'll sit oh, there yeah, in yeah. line. You know, yeah, just, we'll get in line. Yeah. So I actually liked it better than Diagonelli. Did you really? Okay. I, I did. Uh, and here's why. So I'm not a huge Harry Potter fan. I've mm-hmm. seen part of one movie. But I love Diagon Alley. I, I spent six hours in there and was just enthralled by it. Mm-hmm. But for people like me who don't really have an emotional connection to, to either film, mm-hmm. whether you like one land above the other mm-hmm. is going to come down to whether you like the city or nature. And for uh... me, I, I, I like nature a little bit more in this context. Okay. Waterfalls for me resonate more than the city does. And the fact that it's bigger uh, and they've got floating mountains and that, uh, that again, that extra level of detail, the layers upon layers for me. Mm-hmm. Is it a huge margin of victory for Pandora? No, it's not. I would gladly spend spend time in either. I do agree with you, though, that Joe Rody and crew did absolutely exquisite work on a very thin plot. Mm-hmm. You could not have asked them to do any better. In fact, I sent Joe a note actually saying that. And in many ways, I think, Jim, this is the end of Imagineering, like 20th century Imagineering. This is the culmination of everything that they could possibly do with the tools that they had available through the early part of the 21st century. This is it. Every trick that they know, every piece of technology that had existed when they started, they put it in this land and it seems to work. And I think this is the apex of, like I said, 20th century imaginary. It doesn't get better than this in terms of filming a place. The challenge that they're going to face is exactly what you said about Star Wars land. In Star Wars land, we know, for example, that there's going to be technology that not only makes this interactive, which is something that isn't really in Pandora right now, but that remembers you over time. Yeah. And going forward, mm-hmm. the standard for, for Imagineering and for Star Wars Land is going to be, yes, Pandora is the base mm-hmm. of what an immersive environment is like. But to that, you have to add personalization and memory. Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge. So you know, for me, I, yeah, I think it's better than Diagon Alley. Is it enough to sit back for 10 years and coast? I'm not saying Universal coasted, but is it is enough for Disney to market this for 10 years like Universal did for, for Harry Potter? No. I mean, they've, they've got to essentially say, we're done with this, and now we have to up it in two years. Mm-hmm. Two years from now, we have to do all of this that just took seven years, and we have to add memory and interactivity and personalities. Okay. And I think that's a, that's a monster challenge for Disney. You know, no, I, 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 agree. I, think they can, I think they can do it. I mean, this is a very promising first step. Okay. I, I think I think really Pandora is essentially the the world's greatest three dimensional movie trailer for the films that are about to come up. I mean that in the very nicest way. Well, I no, think and, and I will tell you flat out, John Lando, the producer of the Avatar film, feels the exact same way. Len, yeah. All right, so Jim, next time we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about gift shops and food on the next show. How's that, that works? That works for me. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. Please go onto iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care.